Well, let's pray, and then then let me tell you what I want to try to cover um, tonight. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you go through each day with us. You promised that you would never leave us or forsake us. And we're grateful for all the blessings you give us, for your presence, for the peace you give us, the guidance you give us. And I pray that you would be with us this evening in every activity throughout the building tonight. Work, I pray, for the advancement of your kingdom in hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we dealt with two weeks ago um, the development of the Roman Catholic Church. Then we dealt with the properly, you could say, the first split, as it were, off of the Roman Church, and that was the Eastern Orthodox, okay? They're the least known, kind of hard to figure out, but I, we, I think we've dealt with them uh, sufficiently. The second, and by far the most critical and important, of course, was the Protestant Reformation. Um, the Protestant Reformation, even secular um, anti-religious historians um, are in total agreement. The Protestant Reformation altered history, specifically Western history. Um, and, you know, it you, you can't study Western civilization without encountering massive uh, impact of the Reformation that occurred. um, Well, it's dated from the day that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or 95 points of uh, challenged debate um, to be carried out in a a scholarly kind of way. nailed 95 theses to what was then um, in all kinds of villages and cities, the public bulletin board was the door of the main church. And so he, I've had the privilege of standing there looking at that door um, where Luther put his 95 theses. Um, And Everybody in the office two weeks ago or whatever it was failed miserably in the test, the, the quiz I gave them. I said, I want to know how many of you um, know what today is. It was, you know, what, Halloween or whatever, 30th, whatever, 31st. Anyway, now, I don't know if Jessica's back there or not, um, but... She's the only one that even got close, okay? So we gave her some credit. Um, But everybody else was just clear off. Um, It was the 500th and 6th anniversary of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the cathedral door. Um, It could be that they're not weird. I could be weird. That you know that I think about that, but anyway, um, <clears throat> so here's what I want to do. 
I want to not backtrack over a lot of history um, that we've looked at in other classes, um, but I want to give maybe a different overall forest, not looking at the trees, of the gradual evolution within Catholicism that precipitated the Reformation. And then we'll go to about 100 or 150 years just prior to the Reformation for because the pinnacle of issues that were embroiling the Catholic Church in the 1300s and 1400s were at their boiling point, okay? And then the Reformation was 1517. Um, so those two centuries previous um, were, were critical to, um, I think, bringing the um, Reformation on. First thing then to say, um, for centuries there was a gradual assumption of a mediatorial role between the Christian and God. And to put it probably the, probably the simplest way I can, Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. And over about six or eight hundred years, the church very, very gradually, I think even imperceptible to them, just assumed that position. So Jesus got quietly elbowed off the stage. And now the church will see to it that your sins are confessed to them. They will deal with forgiving them. They will deal with the penance, the punishment meted out. They will even deal with you <clears throat> beyond the grave <clears throat> um, in purgatory. And it, it was very gradual, but um, you ended up even with, in some ways, saints and Mary being in a mediatorial role uh, between the, the Christian and Christ, okay? Um, and there was just a um, continual tightening of authority over men's souls, over consciences, um, and more and more and more and more things were decreed to be done in exchange for indulgences or whatever. Back, uh, the first pope by the name of Boniface, um, <clears throat> cooked up the idea of a jubilee. Now, everybody know what the jubilee is? Jubilee is 50 years, comes out of the Old Testament. All debts were canceled. Everything, original property um, bought by, let's say, a Reubenite bought some property that was in Issachar. Um, it all reverted back. All debts canceled. You start over. So, you know, to get totally off subject, God is a capitalist, but he's got enough knowledge of the human heart that he couldn't set up a pure capitalistic system. So with the Israelites, he said, buy, sell, you know, plant, cultivate, grow, gather riches, whatever. But every seventh year, 
the debts you've, little debts you've, uh, loans you've made, whatever, come back. Every 50 years, all property reverts to its original owner and you start over. Okay? Um, he knew that the greedy heart of the humans had to have some, some kind of a break, you know, some B-R-A-K-E on the greed. And if, it let, if he let it go, it wouldn't work. So that quit in the Christian dispensation. But um, the first pope to revive it was this Boniface. And he, I think it was in the 12s or somewhere, but anyway, he declared... Um, a jubilee in which, quote, he said, full and complete forgiveness of sins if you make a pilgrimage to Rome and you donate X amount of money, okay? The coffers were running low for the church. The, the crusades had um, really taken a, a chunk out of the budget. Um, and so they needed cash inflow. Um, and so if you promise, basically, you give money and we'll forgive your sins. Well, you don't have any business forgiving anybody's sins. You can't, give, you can't forgive anybody's sins. But that was never even questioned by then because it was so fully believed. The church had the authority to do that. Well, the church doesn't have authority to do that. Um, but that's how far this gradual, just like a bulldog grip, got on on people um, by the church okay now um, a second thing was developing at the same time and this was I guess you could say is secular just part of history of humans there was just a, a slow but also very clear advancement in thinking um, of people groups. Now let me explain what I mean. From shortly after the resurrection of Christ and the foundation of the early Christian church, um, the whole of Europe, even parts of Asia, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, rise of Islam, all kinds of stuff. It was just a boiling pot for centuries. And that gradually, when people groups conquered and began to settle, then began to rise nationalism and, and, uh, and language groups, particularly in um, Europe. French began to feel, think of themselves as, we're French. English, we're, we're English. The Germans. The Germans had pushed down with a lot of, lot of tribes and helped in the weakening of Rome. Um, but things settled down somewhat. And the rise of feudalism, everybody knows what, um, you know, the, <clears throat> the barons, the great barons, and the slaves, the indentured servants that worked their property. Um, but things began to settle. Boundaries begin to be, at least if not officially, by common agreement, drawn. 
And so the French are over here, the Spanish are over there, the Germans are up there, the Scandinavians and the Norwegians are up there. And things began to um, take shape, I guess you'd say, country-wise. And so there, what comes with that? A settled culture, and it becomes a dominant culture. Anybody that moves in to your territory is expected to assimilate into that and not to, to bring other ideas. If you've got other ideas, leave them at home. Um, and so you have the solidifying of kind of pre-nations, okay? Um, <clears throat> so that began to rise, and with that, monarchies. Now, you usually had, for a long time, you had a head of a nation, but usually it was a, a military general, an Alexander the Great, an Attila the Hun, a Hannibal, a Genghis Khan. They were the law, but they were primarily marauders. <laughs> they, were, they were, you know, big armies just tearing stuff up. You can't do that forever. So then you have the rise of kings, not for the first time, but you have monarchies and you have dynasties and things get settled. Well, the king, obviously, um, wasn't coming into a vacuum because from the 600s, 500s, the Roman Empire had collapsed. The only institution that was uh, viable, had structure to it, had a system of authority, had a hierarchy, um, and had any kind of cohesiveness was the Catholic Church. So you didn't hardly have secular government. The church ran everything. Well, you have the rise of nationalism. You have the rise of kings. And what do you got? You got a king who can tax, a king who wants to make laws, a king who wants to do what he wants to do. You've also got in each country, you've got bishops, you've got archbishops, you've got cardinals. They can tax. They can tax also. Um, and in most cases, they had a head start on the kind of newly minted monarchs. So they owned massive, the church, massive swaths of property. Every you know, monastery, every convent, whatever. Fields, you know, whatever the deal was. But nevertheless, they, <clears throat> they had massive holdings. Um, <clears throat> and the church would tax the kings. What could, you think, well, why'd they put up with that? I think what we totally don't understand, probably never really can, is the power over a conscience, a conscience that's somewhat darkened. Okay? If you take people who know the scriptures, walk with God, Christ, you know, the spirit of Christ is in their hearts. They're going to go, they're going to do what the hearers of Paul did. They're going to get their Bibles out and say, is what Paul, of all people, even, is what he's saying true or not? Well, when you don't know the Bible, and I hope we get out of here tonight uh, on time. But you know what was on a fairly, well, it's a pretty long list of banned, B-A-N-N-E-D, banned books? The Bible. Other than the Latin Vulgate translation, okay? You couldn't have a Bible in English, in German, 
in French, in Spanish. You weren't allowed to. It was not safe for the lay people to study the Bible. The priests, the local clergy, whoever, interpreted it. And so nobody knew the Bibles. That's hard for us to grasp. So if I tell every one of you here, you, you've, never set, you've never set eyes on a Bible. So I tell you, you all at the back door, um, you give me $50 a piece as you take your way out to the parking lot tonight, um, or that'll be a sin. And if I, don't, if I don't give you a pardon, you're cut off from communion, you're going to go to hell. Now, what, 600, how many ever, you know, thousand years ago? That would work. You don't know any different. That kind, so that's the power they had. Kings would knuckle under because all the Pope had to do, and there was a term for it, called an interdiction. And he could declare not only did the king, was the king excommunicated, but the whole, the whole country was under an interdiction, meaning no priest could offer communion, no one could take the Eucharist, and that's how you're saved. That's how you keep your link to God. I'll cut you off. Now, you, you may, I don't know, you may think, well, yeah, you're over. Listen, I am not I know what I'm talking about. I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I'm not making anything up. And the hold over men's consciences can be a bondage that is stronger than literal chains. Okay? So, um, there arose an inevitable clash between the kings and the nobility, and it usually was over money, taxation, and so forth, between the Catholic authorities in any of those countries and the monarch, okay? Well, you had in France, um, in, in like 1300, whatever, five or something, um, I think the French were the first ones to start it, but they decided that they were going to, it was essentially what we have today. Um, we don't pay taxes here. We don't take property taxes. We don't pay, you know, the IRS for any income taxes. Well, back then, and that goes clear back, by the way, it goes clear back to Egypt and the, when the Israelites were slaves there. It just mentions the priest's lands was never taxed. Well, that's ancient, okay? Well, the kings are thinking, you know what, I get a percent or two percent or we got how many mills we can pass to tax the land. Boy, there's millions of acres of land off limits to me because the church owns it. And so they, you know, they've had a bunch of wars or whatever and they're bankrupt or they're, things are getting low. So they started taxing the church property or in some cases just confiscating it. Well, then the cardinal, of course, who's the pope's delegate there, wasn't too happy about it, and word gets to Rome, and then, of course, you get threats of excommunication and all kinds. This kind of stuff went on, okay? So that, things had settled down. It's kind of like somebody turned the burners back on, 
and the pot started seething a little bit and it was heading towards a boil. Okay, that's the 13s and the 14s. Now, um, what does, I don't care if you are a total heathen or I don't care if you're a pope, I don't care who you are. Um, what happens when you get, there's always a tipping point, but when you get uh, um, a massive amount of power and authority, what happens? What? Corruption. Always. Okay. In the 1400s, well, no, 1300s, there end up three popes. Now, the last I checked, you know, there's supposed to only be one. Uh, there's one representative of Jesus on earth who appointed himself to that. Now there were three. Um, Rome was uh, enough of a mess and corrupt, corrupt itself and open to invasions and all kinds of stuff. So um, a, a new pope got elected and he moved from Rome first time since Christ. He moves from Rome and he goes to a place called Av uh, Avignon in France, across the Italian-French border. Okay? Palatial stuff still there today where the, the new papacy was there. And historians call it, and the Catholic historians call it, but Everybody does. They call it the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. Okay, And they get that from the Babylonian captivity of Judah, which was 70 years. Well, this lasted 72. Okay, So this guy, Urban or whoever his name, there's too many names to come up with. But anyway, or to remember, he moves the entire, it's like moving Washington, D.C. to Boise. I mean, it's a massive move. Okay, So, um, he moves lock, stock, barrel up there. He doesn't even come back to Rome. Well, meanwhile, there's still powerful people and ancient, um, you know, traditions and so forth in Rome regarding the church. And there are cardinals and bishops and archbishops that, you know, are mad at that pope for leaving Rome. It cut into their pocketbooks. And so they had a couple of councils of all cardinals and everything, without the Pope. And they deposed the Pope. Well, they thought he was deposed, but he didn't. <laughs> okay, And they elected another Pope. So he, this new one wasn't going to back off. The old one says, you don't have any authority. I am authority over church councils. You guys decide doctrinal issues. You don't fire the Pope. So now you've got two Popes. Okay? That went on for, I can't remember how many years. The whole ruckus went on for 72. Um, finally, they, they got together and they ended up um, deposing both popes and electing an, a replacement. The problem was the two that got deposed, like the first who was still treating himself as a pope, even though he basically got deposed twice, nobody quit. You're not telling me to quit. So now he had three popes. Interesting. 
uh, all of whom are infallible whenever they speak about the things of God. Something's amiss, okay? Um, the latter pope and the one that finally survived, um, they, talked in t they talked one of the original two popes into just quitting, and so he bailed. Um, then they deposed this other guy again and paid him off and, you know, get out. So they got back down to one, okay? This one pope then was so corrupt, I can't remember the, I believe the number is 15, of children that he had. Tough when it, you're a celibate. Um, even he was so corrupt that cardinals, archbishops, other authorities were forced to remove him because they, they were embarrassed. And they knew he, he's so far off the rails that we can't justify it and we can't remedy it. Um, so anyway, they come up with a new pope again and he moves back um, to Rome. Well, so you have almost a century, three-quarters of a century, of corruption and backroom, backstabbing politics um, and total immorality on the part of especially this one pope. With these other things going on, it, it just drew everything to a head. So you get near the end of the 1400s, the stage is set for, um, well, the stage is set for Martin Luther, but in the 14s, there were two men that we, we would call the first reformers. One was John Wycliffe. That name you've probably heard of. John Wycliffe in England. John Huss, Czechoslovakia. Okay? Um, both of them without really connecting with each other, because remember, you know, that you're 100 miles, you'd never go that far in your whole lifetime. Um, but at any rate, Wycliffe, the first thing Wycliffe did that got him in bad trouble was he, he um, translated the New Testament from Latin into English. Um, so he said, every plowboy can know the Bible. Well, that was on the banned list, and you weren't supposed to do that. So he got uh, in trouble there. Um, he ended up, then he really went off the rails because he, he told them what he thought, okay? He started saying, okay, look, I don't have to confess my sins to somebody else. I confess them to Jesus Christ. He's the one that forgives. The church can't forgive. Indulgences is evil, um, the Pope does not have power to um, let people out of purgatory early if you give enough money. And very quickly, I've got to remind you of this thing because you've got to kind of keep it in the back of your head. The, it, a doctrine developed over centuries called the treasury of merit. And I've explained that to you, I think, before. That uh, people who, who have an excess of merit, um, that gets banked. Okay, um, and the Pope has authority to dispense those credits that are in an account. It's a heavenly account, but he's 
got power over it, okay? So um, he is able to cover shortfalls <laughs> or whatever else because he has this treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit gave rise then to the sale of indulgences, which was you prepay for sins. And I'm not making this up either. I've read the documents myself, okay? Uh, you can see pictures of them um, in a history book. You, you not only pay, you can get grandma out of purgatory. Um, you can pay in advance. And here again, I'm not making this up. If I know I'm going to hang one on Friday, okay, like the, what was it, Miller or whoever was it, I gay better than this. So if I and no, I, we're going to hang on one Friday night and it's Wednesday, I can buy an indulgence on Wednesday to forgive me what I'm planning to do on Friday. And I'm not making that up. Wonderful fundraiser. Okay. That got to be a roaring success through the later 1400s. And it's what finally sent Martin Luther off the deep end in 1517 to nail those 95 points of debate. And indulgences was one of them, and it was his last straw. Found one of his parishioners after a papal delegate came through that part of Germ Germany, Saxony, and was selling indulgences. And I... Sure, I've mentioned to you, the little jingle was when into the coffer a coin doth ring another soul from purgatory doth spring. Okay, that was if you're selling to get grandma out. Um, so, Luther challenged him. He was also a monk, a priest, um, a doctor of theology, a teacher in Wittenberg University. He challenged him. Um, and this guy, Tetzel was his name, was a mousy sort of a character. And Luther, I don't have time to go into Luther, but Luther today, if you want to talk about, maybe if you went to Webster's and looked for um, the old term now, politically incorrect, there'd be a large picture of Martin Luther. Okay, Martin Luther, his story though is so fascinating. We can't recognize, we, we don't have any way to grasp. He was up against the power of the whole known world who had the power of life and death. He was, Luther was a, you talk about a bull in a china shop. Even his friends, his whole life, tried to calm him down. You can't, here's one true one. You can't receive a letter from the Pope saying that you should stop preaching what you're doing and write him a letter back calling him a fool and a maniac. You probably shouldn't do that to the Pope, okay? He didn't care. I stood outside the wall that's still there of the city of Wittenberg, Germany, where Luther's he lived and taught, University of Wittenberg. And there's a massive oak tree planted with a big plaque uh, that spot used to be the city dump and when he got a letter from the Pope telling him he's he has to quit preaching that 
You don't have to confess your sins to the priest. You confess them to Jesus. You don't have to make 15 pilgrimages to Rome to be saved. You have to trust in Jesus. You're saved by faith, not by works. And so they sent a letter to him, cease and desist. He took the students and half the the city, but a lot of the students' university, um, out to the city dump and burned it. Burned the letter from the Pope. And then, for good measure, just threw a lot of other books in that <laughs> um, he didn't like. And there, there's this plaque, and man, I don't know, it's a how many hundred-year-old um, tree planted there. And you just stand there, and you think, what? This guy was something else. Um, the Pope put a, the Pope excommunicated him, and uh, put a price on his head, and uh, then the nobility in that part of Germany went to bat and said, hey, let's have a hearing. Don't, even con- don't condemn the guy to, you know, have a hearing. And so they had this hearing and um, kind of trial, basically. And that's where Luther uttered his famous words. They, they told him, they, they piled all these books, all these sermons, everything on this big table. And they said, you burn these yourself while we overlook it or we'll burn you at the stake. And he wavered a little. I mean, it just shocked him. And so he asked for the night. He asked, would you give me till tomorrow morning? Um, and they agreed. So he got up in the morning. He went there. They put it before him again. These are all the things that have been declared. You're a heretic. Uh, these are false. Are you going to burn them or do we burn you? And then he just made this short. He said, it is neither right nor safe to go against your conscience. And he said, um, basically his conclusion was, here I stand before you. I can do no other. So help me God. And he just stood there. So they, they had promised him safe passage back to Wittenberg. They probably loathed the fact that they had done it. But they signed it that the they would give him safe passage. And then they reported back to the Pope, and then he would make official sentence, I guess. And that takes a while. So he gets in a wagon. He doesn't know a thing about this. He gets in a wagon, and he's leaving to go back to Wittenberg. And um, I don't know if they show it. You know, there's an old black and white, and then there's the new, newer Luther film movie. Anyway. All these, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of bandits and people come just pouring out of the woods, and they grab him off of the wagon and leave his, the rest of his party in the wagon. They don't know what's going on, and they figured they're going to kill him. He just vanishes. Well, the Duke Frederick, who was over Germany, um, and was also a, a an elector, he was called. They elected the Roman Empire uh, emperor who worked hand in glove with the Pope. Anyway, so he carried some sway. He basically arranged for a kidnapping. They took him way up in the German woods in Bavaria to a castle called Wartburg. Um, and he, you have to rent a mule <laughs> to get there. Okay, They used to have a gondola car, I guess, and they tore it down. But if you go there, um, you have to rent a mule. The, the, you know, they'll take you up there, but it's the only way you can get up there. 
And he spent a year there. No one knew where he was at. No one knew, except Frederick. Um, he didn't waste his time. He spent uh, the year translating the whole Old and New Testament into German. Um, wrote kinds of, all kinds of books and whatever. Um, never left um, Saxony or that, that area again because he had a price on him till the day he died. And so he stayed there, taught at Wittenberg, and that's where the, the Reformation really was, it, was the spark, and it went from there. Now, a um, couple other things that we've got to kind of understand here. Um, I mentioned Wycliffe and Huss. They were in the 1400s. Both of them preached essentially what Luther did in the 1500s, early 15s. They were both... Uh, declared to be heretics and burned at the stake. Okay? Um, I'm sorry. Huss was burned at the stake. Wycliffe, they threatened him with burning him at the stake. He ended up dying. Of, he was old to begin with. And so he just died a natural death. But they fixed him. Let me tell you. They dug him up and burned him. <laughs> what? Anyway, um, so, <clears throat> now, um, what came out of the, the, the horse was out of the barn with Luther, and this was a domino thing throughout all the rest of the countries um, in all of basically southern and a few places up in northern Europe, okay? Um, here was the problem. Now, well, yeah, it was a problem. We wouldn't want to live under it today. Duke Frederick was a Catholic in Germany. Well, he saw the light. I mean, he agreed. He felt like uh, Luther had points. So he became, wasn't really a term yet, but he, he became a Lutheran. He said, I'm cutting it off with Pope. I'm, I believe, they weren't called Protestants yet. Um, I believe that we're saved by faith. I don't have to go through the church to forgive, get sins forgiven. Jesus does that. Um, and my conscience is free to serve him as, as he directs me, not as I'm told to do. Um, now multiply Duke Frederick by, I don't know, 100 different um, little, if you go, want to call them countries, provinces, whatever. Even under the Protestant Reformation, there was still this, this marriage between secular and church. They knew no other. They, they just didn't even know anything else. So Duke Frederick decides to be, um, he's a Catholic. That means I'm Duke Frederick, okay? Every last one of you are Catholics. No questions asked. You don't even think about asking a question. I'm a Catholic, You're, you are. Well, I decide I'm gonna be a Protestant. You just became all Protestants overnight. And that was the case in every country and province. The monarch determined what you were. That's why you go through old English history and there was all kinds of angst and fights and wars and assassinations over who came to the throne. Because if it was a Catholic like Queen Mary, the churches would be closed. The, you know, the, 
all the Catholic property would be given back to the Catholics and the Church of England would go underground and then if she dropped dead in three years and you know a six-year-old boy of hers became the king all the advisors were Protestants now things are great we got a Protestant um, so there was a good long period where you were what the monarch was so there was a sense in which you didn't have quite the freedom that you thought you'd have Okay, now, um, anyway, <clears throat> early Protestants then, it started with Luther, it quickly went to uh, Switzerland. You can remember this if you want. A guy named Zwingli was kind of the guy there. Um, and then it wasn't too long, 10, 15 years later, uh, John Calvin came along and he was in Geneva. Um, but you had, if you look in history, you have an English Reformation, a Swiss Reformation, a Scandinavian uh, Reformation, the German Reformation, uh, the French Re uh, Reformation, because the idea of a universal church, even though they talked about the Catholic, which means universal, it, it, thing, you didn't travel. Things were too little um, or too big, and your countries, you just stayed home, okay? Um, so, you had a whole bunch of reformations, country to country. Most of them were on the same, and I'll give you three or four foundations here, but then they would all have some differences. And so it took, in some cases, 100 years, 150 years, to resolve those, and you couldn't. So you ended up with different denominations and different doctrines, okay? Which means Protestantism, Catholicism has its dissensions and so forth, but they're a unit. Protestants, um, Protestants are exactly what the Catholics predicted we would become. Eight million denominations because, you know, First Baptist Church built a building and they wanted, somebody wanted green carpeting and somebody said God told them it should be brown and so they voted and the Browns lost so the Browns got mad and went down the street two miles and started Second Baptist Church. You, you know what I'm talking about? And you just do that all over the place. So where here in America we have something like four to five hundred organized denominations. Um... So, in that point, the, <laughs> the Catholics were right. You let people go do their own thing, and it's going to be a mess. Okay, now, <clears throat> here are the, here's what distinguishes basically a Protestant. Um, and uh, there's just four main ones. One, the, question, the answer to the question, how are you saved? You are justified by faith. You do not have to to do a bunch of things, to earn merit. It is by faith. You will do good works as a result of being saved, but the, do, the good works do not save you, ever. So I'm saved by faith. That was radical. It was in the Bible, but it was new. Second, um, the soul and supreme authority was not the church which had grown into that, and that was the problem, Scripture. 
the authority of Scripture is the final arbiter of truth. Okay? Um, now, granted, it has to be interpreted. Um, and as, you know, people can still, Peter wrote about Paul's writings. He said, sometime, sometimes Paul's hard to understand. And he said, the unlearned and the unspiritual twist to their own destruction. You can twist the scripture. But uh, assuming that we approach it with an open, honest heart, this is our source of authority, nobody else. Third, <clears throat> um, priesthood of all believers. That's a major one. Priesthood of all believers means I do not, I do not need a man, a human on earth to represent me to God. I can, I can go to God the Father through Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit by myself. I do not need, nor does any human have any business get involved in supposedly um, mediating for me. Um, that was radical. But it's biblical. All of us, um, when we pray to the Father, when we, you know, and He told us how to pray, and told us to pray in Jesus' name. Why? Um, this doesn't happen very often, but I'll, see, I'll hear people pray and they just say, you know, Lord, help us with this, and, you know, help us not to rain in the picnic. Amen. Now, I don't believe they're going to be struck dead, okay? <laughs> but I don't like that. I'm supposed to pray in the name of Jesus. Why? The Father spared not His own Son to be an adequate, fully adequate atonement for sin. And to be, to, with his own blood, enter into the Holy of Holies on my behalf to give me access to the Father. I can approach the throne then, not because I have merit. Even the worst sinner, black heart as can be, can approach the throne of God himself. But it has to be through Jesus. Jesus is the one that opened the way to the Father. Okay? Um, since he did, no human being has any business putting themselves in between some other soul and the Father. So everyone is, um, can approach God themselves. Okay? Now, then a logical um, that follows that is the complete obliteration of the distinction between secular and sacred. Okay? I recognize that certain people called to the ministry, things of that sort. But in, in the early, this portion, medieval church, there was a 90-foot-tall wall between the secular and the sacred. Um, the people were not to enter into sacred things. That's for the priests. You know what another thing is? Catholicism is really the Galatian error. The problem Paul dealt with in the Galatian church. It was a return to Judaism. Priests, offerings, and he said, if you, re if you walk away from Jesus to be redeemed through earthly stuff, you, you've, you've become, he said, estranged from Christ. 
So at any rate, I don't need a human high priest anymore or any priest. I got one. His name is Jesus. And he, it says his priesthood's forever. Now, um, here's one quick example of the sacred and the secular. For a long time, lay people couldn't even take communion. But then they were granted the right to eat the bread, but not the blood. So for centuries, they could eat the bread, but they couldn't drink the cup. And one of the things that came out of the Protestant Reformation was that lay people are allowed and should um, drink the cup. Because up until then, that was only for the priest to do on their behalf. And that's not in the Bible. Um, but it, again, it's this, it's this separation. And these are kind of passive people out here for whom the priests exercise whatever okay um, those are those are what I would call positive Protestant planks and then here's a couple what we'd say negative things they threw overboard um, no such thing as a Pope um, there are ministers and leaders but there's no one representative of Jesus on earth. The representative of Jesus on earth is the Holy Spirit. And he said, I'm going to, he said, if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He will remind you of what I, what I said. And he will show me to the world. Um, Jesus, well, the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, pretty well, that's pretty, they do a pretty good job. Uh, we, we don't need some human. Um, no pope, no mass, because the word mass is sacrifice. It was, it was, in a sense, treated as an actual re-sacrificing of Christ every time you have a mass, which said he suffered and died once. Uh, only two sacraments, not seven, baptism and Lord's Supper. Uh, no confession to... We're to, we are to confess for mutual help. It says confess your faults one to another um, and pray for one another. That's the kind of confession, if, you, if it were, that we're to do. But not that I go to someone confessing, assuming that he has the power to grant me absolution, forgiveness of it, and then give me a penalty to pay, you know, wear a hair shirt for a week or whatever, like, so many candles or something um, that would be on, in his list. Um, so no absolution of, of, by men, um, no penance and so forth. Um, and we'll quit with this. Well, yeah, we better. Um, Protestis, Protestantism then, as a result of these different countries having kind of their own um, reformations in their own country took basically four streams, okay? And they were primarily doctrinal, okay? I mentioned last Sunday when we were preparing for communion that they fought wars and burned each other at the stake over communion. What it meant. Um, if the power was in it 
or the power was in the one who offered it or was the power in the recipient who trusted in it um, and was the bread and you know bread and cup literally turned into the body and actual blood of Jesus or not um, you were burned at the stake um, that's one of the reasons John Huss uh, and Wycliffe died before they could get him but they burned his bones because he denied transubstantiation um, I mean, it was serious business. Uh, so, Protestantism basically took at least four. One, and we'll just kind of take it in, in uh, order here, Lutheranism. Um, of course, Lutheranism is still very, very many with us. Um, and Lutheranism is especially heavy through, um, well, not only Canada, but through the northern half, northern tier of the U.S. because we had so many uh, immigrants from Scandinavian countries that were Lutheran, okay? Um, then what's called Reformed, okay? Um, reformed also goes by a couple of other names. One uh, other name would be um, Hyper-Calvinism. Um, there's three kinds of Calvinism. There's hyper-Calvinism, there's moderate Calvinism, and there is, is I guess we could call it mild, okay? Um, it's kind of like, you know, barbecue sauce at, at you know, uh, wherever, pokies. Um, you know, it's really spicy, it's medium, or it's mild. Calvinism itself went those directions. Reformed um, is the most rigid. Reformed would have then, and in a few decades and so forth later, would have included then Presbyterians, um, Christian Reformed, Grand Rapids, um, Dutch Reformed, um, and they are the um, predestination hardcore. You know, God, God um, decreed, in some cases, they fight. They, I don't know if I'd say fight, but they disagree over when the decrees were made. But God decreed who would be saved and who would not be saved. Or in other words, who would end up in hell. Okay? He decreed that, and the only argument they have isn't that he decreed it, it's just when. And some say he decreed it prior to the fall, and everybody else says he decreed it after the fall. If you make it prior to the fall, you're in worse shape than the other bunch, other group, because you have God decreeing the fall, which is absurd. But there, there are, they are called supralapsarians, okay? You'll want to memorize that term and just throw it around, you know? <laughs> um, and the people that believe that no, he waited until after the fall occurred to then decree who would be saved and who would go to hell. Those are called infralapsarians. The word lapse is fall. So prior to the fall or subsequent to the fall. Um, then there was a third group, and they were called Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists didn't think that the Lutherans and the Reformed went far enough. Um, they were the kind of people that would go into Catholic churches 
Even Luther was furious with his Lutherans if they went in and, and vandalized the Catholic Church, um, and which some did. The, now, I don't want to get into politics, and this is just an illustration. Okay? Um, the Anabaptists were the Protestant Freedom Caucus. <laughs> okay? Nothing pleased them. Okay, they were a ginnet. I don't care what it was. Okay, um, so they were called Anabaptists, means rebaptizers. If you were baptized by a Catholic priest, it was no good. So you had to get rebaptized. But ninety-nine percent of the case, it was about infant baptism, because. Church of England, you didn't, you didn't, Catholic Church, infant baptism. And you, that puts you on the role of God. Um, and you're inducted into the kingdom of God. So if you weren't infant baptized, my sister and her husband were missionaries for a couple terms down in Argentina. And they would send me pictures, I'm sad, of the adobe walls around a Catholic church and these little tiny headstones outside of the wall, weeds kind of growing around them, but there would be a little, you know, curb or something to separate it. Those were the infants that died before they could be baptized. Okay? Well, the Anabaptists, I mean, they were just hair on fire about all that. And so they said everybody who's ever been baptized, infant or otherwise, by a Catholic, has to be re-baptized. And that's what the word Anabaptist is, a rebaptizer. Okay, But with that, they were just, well, I think they're a problem, to be honest with you. Um, and they were a problem in the Reformation. They were so extreme and so contrary and so just ornery um, that you couldn't deal with them. Now, who are the Anabaptists today? Well, a lot of, and, and I, maybe I, I don't want to get in trouble here. Um, I used to, when my sons were, um, my oldest son got out of seminary, and he was the youth, or no, college pastor in Tuscaloosa for University of Alabama, uh, was there. And so this Wesleyan church he was at, he was the college pastor. Well, um, after he, he got out of seminary, uh, he had to get a second master's because he was going to go get a Ph.D. My other son, Stephen, got his bachelor's, and then he went to live with Jonathan in Alabama, and he was going to Notre Dame to get a doctorate, so he got another master's, okay? So they were both there, and they were getting, got master's in Alabama. Well, we would go visit them when they were there four or five years, and I would uh, run in, their, in the neighborhood where they lived, and... I remember I'd go by this Baptist church, and you could see the sign for quite a ways, and it was it was this: um, independent. Let's see, I, can't, I probably can't remember all. Anyway, anyway, it was uh, such and such um, Baptist church. Independent. I think they might have even put autonomous, which means the same thing. Um, King James only um, I, three or four wrote you'd have to stop 
like at a highway historical marker to get out and read all the stuff that they were against. Um, that, that's the Anabaptists. Now, most of the Anabaptists didn't become today in America Baptists. They are the Amish, the Mennonites, Old Order Amish, uh, Hutterites, uh, Johan, I think, Hutter, uh, Montana, I think, I think we have a Wyoming, but Montana's got a lot of Hutterites. Anyway, uh, what'd you say? Yeah, okay. Anyway, those, those people are the descendants of the Anabaptists. And one of the characteristics of the Anabaptists were anathema to have anything to do with government. <clears throat> they were, and this was radical because then government enforced going to church. Um, even up into John Wesley's days, early 1700s in England, you could get arrested by the local constable if you didn't go to the service. Now, I'm for that. Um, but that's how enmeshed for, why, a thousand years, church and state was. The Anabaptists were just, they just couldn't even think about it. So they had nothing to do with government. Didn't participate in it. Didn't have anything to do. And they wanted the government completely leave them all. Just don't bug us. Um, so clear down even to this day in America, though the descendants that are Baptists, not all Baptists are descendants of them, but the descendants of them that are Baptists, are they will oppose prayer in schools, um, chaplains, um, you know, uh, chaplain for the football team because they, that, that's how radically they, they want the church and the state to have nothing to do with each other. Okay? Now, then the last one is Anglicanism or the Church of England. Um, those are the four streams of doctrine. They don't agree necessarily on doctrine um, that Protestantism almost immediately broke broke up into. So you have the Reformation with Luther, but it wasn't hardly any time at all. And you had this one fountainhead going into four, at least four different streams. Okay? So what we'll look at um, <clears throat> next week is Lutheranism probably first. Um, and, you know, some people think Lutherans are just Catholic light, um, but they're not. Uh, but you have you have a lot of different kinds of Lutherans too, um, which is another whole story. Okay, any questions or whatever before we go? We got kids aren't out yet, so everything so perfectly. Yeah, Dan. Well, <clears throat> they got so corrupt, it amounted to nothing. And so God, in his omniscience and omnipotence, raised up new churches. Because that's all he's ever done. You, you know, here's something I think. <clears throat> um, I, I'm, what could I say? I guess maybe I'm an amateur historian. Um, I do not know of a single not one church, denomination, 
college, anything to do with the, the Christian church that rotted out at the core and ever revived. There were revivals, but they ended up producing, it's like Jesus said, it's, um, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And I've never heard, in all the church history I've read, I've never heard of a denomination reviving that went, went bad. They linger around, the old carcass lingers around, but new ones have started off of that. I'm a Methodist. I mean, that was my history. Um, everybody that I know, back to my great-grandparents, today, and th this makes me sad, they wouldn't go in a Methodist church for a million dollars. They'd get wound up in the rainbow flag. You know what I mean? Grieves you. John Wesley wouldn't ever go to a Methodist church today. Calvin wouldn't go to 90% of Reformed churches. Um, Luther, he'd go, I'll tell you what, Luther would probably go to Missouri Synod, <laughs> Wisconsin, but he wouldn't touch the uh, ELC, Evangelical Lutheran. He wouldn't even go in the parking lot. Okay? So what has God done? He just raises up new ones. The old hang around, finally crumble and die, and hardly nobody even notices it. But that seems to be, Dan, the pattern um, down through history. It's just been, um, by the third, this will really encourage, I want to leave you, with, you know, really give you something upbeat. First generation knows the doctrine and has the experience in their heart. The second generation knows the doctrine somewhat, doesn't have the experience in their heart, but they go through the outward, rote, wooden method, uh, um, rituals. The third generation has neither. They don't know the doctrine, they don't know what they're supposed to believe, and they don't have anything in their hearts. So about that time, the few, <laughs> few people left get worried, and they say, man, life, things are not going good, we've got to do something. And God will help start something else up. And um, that's to a sort of a degree what's happening right now in the Masses Church. If you read anything at all, see, it gets in the news. Global, global Methodist versus United Methodist. United Methodist Church, um, full bore rainbow flag, the whole business, uh, homosexual priests, everything. Um, and so they split. And um, the Global Methodist Church um, is very, they're conservative, Bible-believing, and they couldn't, I think they stood it longer than they should have. Um, and the United Methodist Church has reneged, there's lawsuits all over this country, because the United Methodist Church reneged on every agreement they made with the Global Methodists who wanted to leave with their property. And they've, they, they've at the last minute said, well, no, we, we, you know, we're, we're not going to let you have it. Um, and so now they're, there's court cases all over the place. Um, eventually, they'll probably get it, but it, they'll, they'll make them spend an awful lot of money to, to get it. Um, and you know what? The Global Methodist Church, 90 years from now, they'll be dead. Aren't you glad? 
<laughs> he, he showed up. Um, it's the law of entropy. We, we just go down. Um, God's used to it, and he's, he's seen it before. Okay, that's a good question, Dan. <laughs> but we have to, um, seriously though, we have to just keep going. And this is, I'm a pessimist, and I think, ah, oh, what's the use? Um, you know, nobody's listening. Um, it's, it's like Elijah. He said, I'm the only one left, and it's hopeless. Um, God said, well, it's not quite that bad. Um, but we shouldn't be surprised. The, the human heart is dark. And unless, and every new generation of humans are a bunch of people with inbred sin, an inclination to wander away from God. And so that's why we, we, we have this pattern of uh, raising up and then decline, raising up and then decline. And it's, it'll last till the rapture. Okay, well, let's pray. And then you can just literally skip out of here with joy. Father in heaven, we thank you for... When we look at history, we look at all the way you brought us and how good you are. And we're just grateful that we know God. We have your word. What a privilege that is. And we pray that help, you'd help us just walk in that light. Go with us and keep us safe, we ask tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One last 20-second quote from Luther. Proof, he said, that the church is of divine origin, is if it were not, the preachers would have killed it years ago. Okay? So, anyway. <laughs>